It's Philosophy Talk. Considering the marvelous complexity of the universe, its clockwork perfection, its balances of this against that, matter, energy, gravitation, time, dimension, I believe that our existence is part of a reality beyond what we understand now as reality. Is it just dumb luck that the universe has just the right settings to support life as we know it? What if we're just a bunch of absurd people who are running around with no rhyme or reason? If the universe had turned out differently, would we even be here to worry about it? Oh, yeah. Yes, I definitely think that this is the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, it's certainly the most expensive. Is the universe finely tuned or off-key? Was it tuned by a master tuner? Our guest is Robin Collins from Messiah College. God and the fine-tuned universe, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. We continue conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner uh, at Stanford University. That's where Ken and I are professors of philosophy. And today we're philosophizing about God and the fine-tuning of the universe. You know, one of the more persuasive arguments for the existence of God, at least to ordinary people, goes something like this. All of this, that is, the world around us, a world teeming with life and with intelligence, beauty, human beings, morality, all of those things surely couldn't have come about by accident. It must be due to some intelligent, powerful being, and that's, that's what God is. But, John, all of that stuff you just talked about actually does depend on a series of accidents. Physics teaches us that. Uh, the physicist Freeman Dyson says that without a series of lucky accidents, quote, water could not exist as a liquid, chains of carbon atoms could not form complex organic molecules, and hydrogen atoms could not form breakable bridges between molecules. So no life if none of that. Well, it depends on all that, but that isn't to say it's accidental. Not according to the theist. All of those things result from God's deft and deliberate tuning of the universe. Think about gravity. If gravity were a lot stronger than it is, the universe would never have inflated after the Big Bang. It would have remained in naked singularity and totally devoid of life. If gravity were a lot weaker than it is, the universe might have inflated, but galaxies and stars and planets would never have formed. No planets, no life, no life, no us. That's great. Lucky for us. Gravity is no stronger and no weaker than it is. We live in a Goldilocks uh, universe. But I don't see how the strength of gravity pulls God into the picture. Well, you think of it as a matter of dumb luck. But why suppose that? That's precisely what the theist denies. It's not a matter of dumb luck. It's a matter of divine planning and choice. But, but what gives the theist the right to say that? That's what you still haven't told me. Well, there's, there's two competing hypotheses. You accept the cosmic accident hypothesis. The theist accepts the fine-tuning hypothesis, which is more probable, that the gravitational constant is what it is because God deliberately set its value. That seems to make a lot of sense. 
or that it's just the result of some cosmic accident? Well, i got to admit, John, I frankly don't know how to answer your question. Uh, if a life-supporting universe is highly probable on its own, well, then there's not much to explain, is there? Uh, I, I know, I know. The theist sees it differently. He thinks our universe is highly improbable, kind of like an inordinately long run of sevens at the craps table. And he thinks that this improbable universe needs an explanation. Uh, and, I, and I sort of, I see the point. If our universe were like an inordinately long run of sevens, I might agree. But frankly, I don't know how to determine whether a life-supporting universe is independently probable or independently improbable in the, in the first place. Well, maybe an analogy will help. Suppose I found an aquarium in your house with water and plants and food and just the right combinations required to keep a goldfish healthy and happy. A little bit less and they starve. A little bit more, the water turns putrid and they die. Which is more probable, that the tank is just there and perfectly balanced by blind chance? Well, that somebody did it on purpose. Well, I got to admit, it's clearly the latter. But I already knew that well-maintained fish tanks don't just pop into existence at random. But the universe is different, isn't it? I mean, how do I know what kind of universe is more or less probable? Well, physics tells us. Uh, we've mentioned gravity. That's just one of about 26 parameters that have to be set just right for a universe that supports life, that's human-friendly to develop. We, we know just from the example of, of gravity that it, it's very improbable. As a matter of fact, there's really an infinite number of combinations because these are all continuously variable, variable parameters, I think. So it's just astoundingly improbable that gravity would just have the right strength and all these other things would work out. I mean, you've got to admit that something that improbable, you want to have an explanation. And you really don't have one, and the theist does. But look, you, you don't get to explain the improbable by appealing to something even more improbable. But isn't that just what the theist is trying to do? Wouldn't his hypothesis require the prior existence of a creator-friendly universe with parameters of its own in that universe that have to be set to allow for the development of such a powerful and wonderful being? Come on, how probable is that? Well, what you're trying to do is hoist the theist on his own petard. You are suggesting that the theist argument will only seem plausible if one already sees the existence of the creator that the theist uses to explain the, the universe as not completely implausible and, and, and thinks that this creator won't have to uh, require a similar explanation for its existence. That, that's exactly right. That is what I'm trying to do. I don't know if it, I've succeeded, but and I admit that there is a lot more to say on both sides of this really complicated and deep issue. And to help us to begin, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, out to talk to one of the world's leading cosmologists about what our universe might have been without the fine-tuning. She files this report. You know those plot lines where a character turns right instead of left and her entire life changes? What if at some point in the past 13 billion years, things had happened a little differently in the universe? At the physical level, if the universe is, isn't tuned right, then there isn't any matter, there isn't any life there, so there's no possibility of us being and us thinking. George Ellis is a cosmologist and professor emeritus at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He says the chance that the universe would turn out as it did, full of life, was just incredibly unlikely. What's the more likely outcome? The more likely outcome is dead universes, universes where everything's dead either because it's all collapsed into black holes or it's all 
expanded forever and there aren't any structures of any interest. Like in the 1979 sci-fi film The Black Hole, about a mad scientist who tries to enter a black hole to study it. The most destructive force in the universe, Harry. Nothing can escape it, not even light. I had a professor who predicted that eventually black holes would devour the entire universe. Why not? When you can see giant suns sucked in and disappear without a trace? Ellis says there are many physical parameters that need to be in place before life can exist. For example, gravity and kinetic energy. Kinetic energy pulls things apart and gravity pushes them together. The universe had to get that ratio just right. If you have too much kinetic energy, no structures ever form. There's no galaxies and there's no stars, there's no life. Um, if you have too much gravity pulling things together, everything collapses into a black hole and that's the end of things because <laughs> and so no interesting structures form because everything's gone into black holes. So you need a nice delicate balance. So after you've got a universe that is not collapsing on itself or expanding forever, you need an environment that can sustain life. An energy source, nutrition, reservoirs of carbon, phosphorus, nitrogen and oxygen. And of course, to get life going, you need a cell. The fact of the matter is, despite all of our efforts, we do not know how the first cell get going. From there, you need two cells working together. Once you have that, evolution kicks in and you're on your way. You then have to get a nervous system going. You have to start sensing light, sensing motion and all of that. You have to start getting neurons fitting together. At this point, you have animals that are reacting to things. But how did we get from animals to humans? The step we do not understand in any way is the way in which consciousness arrives, the fact that I can see a picture in my mind of how things are going on, I can hear things, I can feel pain. That step to qualia, to, to feelings and to, to, to consciousness, that we do not understand at all. So how did we get to where we are? Is it a coincidence that our universe developed the way it did? Or did something make that happen? Why this universe with all its people and trees and animals instead of a black hole? What kind of being or purpose or whatever could have done this? You, you can't answer that. You're, you're in the realm of speculation. And of course, this is what people have speculated for thousands and thousands of years. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Wow, Caitlin, thanks for helping me understand what a miraculous, incredible piece of work I am. <laughs> I'm John Perry, and with me is another incredible piece of work from the Stanford Philosophy Department, Ken Taylor. <laughs> Today, we're asking about the fine-tuning of the universe. We're joined now by Robin Collins. He's a distinguished professor of philosophy from Messiah College. He's author of many essays on the fine-tuning argument, the most extensive one in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. Robin, welcome to Philosophy Talk. It's great to be here. Robin, your, your first degrees were in math and physics. I believe you once Correct. worked at our linear accelerator at Stanford, which, as far as I know, doesn't have a position for natural theologians. Well, that's now, correct. <laughs> <laughs> now you focus on the philosophy of religion and especially the fine-tuning argument. So just give us a, a, the brief story of this interesting journey. How'd you get there? Well, um, when I was first um, went to college, I had become a Christian but had a many um, doubts about many aspects of the Christian faith, including the um, existence of God. So I eventually took a third major in philosophy, um, which I thought attempt to sort through the philosophical issues. And then I went on to graduate school in um, theoretical physics at the University of Texas at Austin. And during the um, afternoons, instead of doing physics, um, 
myself and a couple of my office mates, we would end up talking about religion and God, et cetera, et cetera. So I went on and eventually um, applied to graduate school in philosophy and was interested in philosophy of religion. And then that was in the 80s, and some books had just come out in the 80s on the fine-tuning. Um, but it wasn't until later when I started teaching philosophy and going through the arguments for the existence of God, I got really interested in the fine-tuning argument and how to formulate it as a um, significant argument. Okay, well, let's, let's turn to that fine-tuning argument now. Uh, maybe, maybe if that had been available in the 60s uh, when I went through a kind of a similar college career, instead of falling into a black hole of agnosticism and atheism, I would have ended up being a believer. So let's give it another try. Now, when we see improbable events within the universe, we think that they require an explanation. I grant you that. But how should we think about it when the universe itself is at issue? Not something in the universe, but the universe itself. I'm just not sure I know how to think about it, and I'm, I'm not sure that the fact that the universe is a human-friendly place requires an explanation. Can you help me out there? Yes, um, I don't like the way um, the question is framed as require an explanation because I'm not sure mm -hmm. what you mean by require. So I frame it a different way. I frame it in terms of the fine-tuning of the universe or the fact that there is a universe that allows for what I call conscious embodied agents such as ourselves offer strong evidence for the existence of God over the naturalistic alternatives such as that there's just this universe and it happened by accident. So it's um, much like in the case of a courtroom, you might say that um, the fingerprints on the gun um, count as strong evidence that um, that the defendant is guilty, but you wouldn't say that necessarily, um, you wouldn't know just from that that the best explanation for those finger, um, fingerprints being on the gun was the defendant is guilty because there might be, there's would be a lot of other evidence you would have to take into but account. Just let me just stop you briefly. I mean, I've, I think you don't like this requiring, but it, you say there's there has to be something that to be explained, the fact of a life-supporting universe. I mean, I don't quite see, there's explanations of life in the universe, you know, molecules, and I don't see, is there really something to explain, be explained, that's mysterious, the bare fact of a life-supporting universe? Why is that a mystery in need of explanation? Well, it's not, a way I would frame it is it's very surprising. If you, you know, if you did not know, let's suppose you in an unembodied, alien and you did not know whether there was a um, life-permitting universe and you found out that the constants had to be just precisely set right in, let's say, you know, in the case of the cosmological constant, one part in 10 to the 120th um, power, which is one followed by 120 zeros, that level of precision, I think, and you, you knew there was only one universe, I think, and there wasn't a god. I think you would find it extremely um, surprising you that um, such a universe um, existed. And so um, it's really the surprise factor here that I'm focusing on. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, God and the fine-tuned universe. In our next segment, we'll ask this. Do we really need God to explain why our universe sustains human life and consciousness? Physicists came up with gravity, radioactivity, and quarks. Don't they have something in their bag of tricks that can explain this? Humans, gods, and physicists. Plus, your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues.
a universe perfectly tuned to human life. Is that the way God planned it? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're questioning the fine-tuning of the universe. Our guest is Robin Collins, whose chapter on the fine-tuning argument can be found in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. So, Robin, for completeness, we've got two hypotheses on the on the board. We got the cosmic accident hypothesis and the fine-tuning hypothesis. But there's a there's a third one that we haven't talked about. Uh, maybe you know maybe the fine-tuning argument is less mysterious than the cosmic hy- accident hypothesis. Uh, maybe. But there's another one, the the multiverse hypothesis. It says that all the universes that could possibly exist actually do exist. And unsurprisingly, back to your surprise factor, unsurprisingly, we exist in the one that supports life. Isn't that hypothesis less uh, mysterious than your fine-tuning hypothesis? Well, first of all, I wouldn't frame it in terms of being less or more mysterious. It's a question of surprise. But with regard to that um, hypothesis, I think there are four objections to it. And I'll just uh, mention um, one of the primary objections here. And that is that I think that hypothesis, at least to some extent, kicks the fine-tuning up one level um, to the universe generator itself. Now, that's the most common um, kind of hypothesis there, that there's some physical process that generates many, many universes. But if you look at details of the kinds of physical processes proposed, they require just the right laws and mechanisms to, first of all, generate universes and then vary the constants of the universe. And they have to have further just the right laws even for one of those to become life-permitting. So you have fine-tuning then at the level of the universe generator itself. Robin, uh, so uh, that seems like, to me, a a non-physicist, a a pretty compelling objection. I I mean, I just find the multiverse idea kind of baffling. But I I wonder if a similar objection can't be made uh, uh, to your view, which we kind of hinted at at the beginning. I mean, you've got a creator that's... uh, 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 does the fine-tuning. So that creator has to exist in some sense before antecedent to or outside of the universe. But where did that creator come from? Doesn't there have to be a creator-friendly universe that uh, had just the right parameters for for the creator to come along? Okay. Um, In the case of the creator, there's a variation of that question I usually get is when the creator need to be designed or Mm -hmm. fine-tuned. If you look at traditional theism, um, the creator, first of all, is thought to be necessarily existent. And second, the creator, and this was long before the fine-tuning, this was the plausible view both in the West and in the East where you have like Hindu versions of theism. The creator is thought to be not only necessarily existent but have no internal complexity or very minimal internal complexity. And that's why the creator's attributes are unbounded Whenever you get bound, whenever you have internal complexity, you need bounds, like you have, for example, in a watch. There's a bound between the um, gears in the watch and the springs. I'm talking about an old-fashioned watch here. Um, but if, you, uh, if, if the attributes like God's power or God's knowledge are unbounded, then there's um, 
either no or very minimal internal complexity. And so this has been called the doctrine of divine simplicity. But Robin, Robin, okay, there's a lot of theologizing you could do about what the attributes of God must be like in order that you ward off John's objection, right? But that's completely ad hoc, it seems to me. It's it's a kind of saving maneuver, but let, but 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 in the end, it seems to me that you your hypothesis, whatever I give you, your creator has no advantage over either the multiverse hypothesis or the single universe hypothesis, because at the bottom of each uh, is a brute fact, and you basically said, well, I, I'm going to take God as a brute fact. It all stops in a brute fact. Now, why are, you, why are you more satisfied with the God brute fact than with either the multiverse brute fact or the single universe brute fact? I have no idea why you find that well, one me, more satisfying than the other brute fact. Let me first say why it's not ad hoc. It's on, a hypothesis is only ad hoc if it's made up to save a, a, um, the hypothesis from refutation. But this belief about God was there long before the evidence for fine-tuning, long before this kind of objection was raised. So that's point number one. But point number two, um, all like, I mean, at the bottom, there is always going to be mystery. So if you use your criteria of, well, you get mystery at the bottom, um, whatever hypothesis you invoke, then you wouldn't infer to anything, even in science. No, that's not true. That's, look, that's not true. That's not true. I mean, there's lots of uh, causal chains. There's lots of explanatory chains, a hierarchy of explanation. In the end, though, explanation bottoms out in a brute fact. The atheist materialist well, says the brute fact is the Big Bang at the beginning of the universe. That's the Big Bang. Maybe there's more of a brute fact. We're going to find some brute fact. So look, these 26 things, maybe we'll find a brute fact through grand unification that from one parameter, all the values of the other parameters follow. We don't know that yet, but we you know, we might think our theory is incomplete, but it's still going to get to a brute fact. Where, the, where explanation stops, it stops. And you have a stopping well, I, point, but I don't see that your, your stopping point has any f- better grounds for the materialist atheist stopping point for explanation. What you have in the case of the materialist atheist is an enormously coincidental brute fact. In the case of the theist, you don't have enormously coincidental brute fact. And if you put it in my evidential terms, what happens is before, before the fine-tuning evidence came along, you know, you had a judgment about theism versus... Um, atheism, but then the fine-tuning evidence, a way I like to think about the fine-tuning evidence um, made the atheist hypothesis a lot worse than it was before, because before you could believe, well, it wasn't just highly, highly coincidental. Now you have not only being this kind of ultimate bottoming out mystery, but now it's an extremely coincidental Mystery. I mean, you're talking about one part in 10 to the 120th power, the case of entropy, one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power, just enormous, enormous precision. So, so Robin, I, I, I kind of agree with you on two points. I don't think your hypothesis is odd hoax because it wasn't made up for just this purpose. And, and I do think, as a, as a sort of materialist atheist, that the, that the fine-tuning facts are not about me to con- convince me to give it up, but they're, they're not, not what I would have expected. But let's go back to this simple, simple God. Now, you didn't make that up. It's not ad hoc. It's been around for a long time. 
But but it you know it hasn't been around since the Old Testament. It it came around at least in the Christian tradition from philosophers and theologians, and they had arguments. And a lot of people think those arguments haven't stood up well over time. Uh, for example, the idea that Descartes and others had that you know a, a complicated mechanical thing couldn't think. Well, we know that complicated mechanical things do think, and when we look at nature, uh, we, we find that any time there's planning or knowledge, there's always this complexity that's denied in the case of God. So you must have some other reasons, or you must think those traditional arguments were pretty good. You're not just accepting this because Aquinas or somebody like that said it, are you? Well, you don't have to think the arguments are necessarily how evaluate how good they are. Sure, I mean, without the fine-tuning evidence or other factors, one will have doubts about the logical coherence of this hypothesis of about um, this kind of unbounded being, okay, whether it makes sense. But one will also have doubts, I mean, this is before the fine-tuning evidence, about the um, universe just being uh, always existing, or beginning in the case of the Big Bang, um, on its own without any further explanation. So it's like having two candidates, A and B, okay? And we don't really know which one to choose. And then suddenly, and this is what I would uh, view the f- an analogy for the fine-tuning evidence, really bad dirt has been dug up on candidate B. <laughs> and given we have to choose between the two, um, even though we still have the, our doubts about candidate A, how well these other arguments work, or maybe just our our religious experience or intuitions, now candidate A is looking a lot better, and I think I would go vote for candidate A. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about God and the fine-tuned universe, and Pam from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Pam. What's your comment or question? Thank you. Good morning. Well, I find the possibility of of a supreme being that created the universe... um, much less realistic, much much less believable than the idea that it happened on its own. And I think that the the difference now is that when people first created in their minds the idea of a God, they only knew this universe. So it seemed, wow, amazing that this happened. And now I think we know that there are many, many universes, and there's many, many solar systems, and um, we're just one little tiny place. Yes, this random thing happened. So thanks for the uh, comment, Pam. What do you think, uh Robin, you got a response to that? Well, I um, don't think that um, <clears throat> this new evidence we have about the size of the universe um, actually makes um, its existence on its own uh, more plausible, as the caller assumes, but actually less plausible. The more we found out about the universe, the more we've seen how much fine-tuning it needs, mm-hmm. and more even the age and extent of the universe, if you want to um, reflect the attributes of um, its creator, um, it, uh, um, eternality and infinity of its creator. So I don't see anything that we found out about the universe in that way as taking away from the plausibility of the God hypothesis and increasing the plausibility of the, um, that it was just here as a brute fact, but just actually just the opposite. So, so Robin, uh, we've got some email here that uh, kind of gets back to uh, a question I asked you earlier. Um, This is from Joe, and she says, Probability is a human construct, an outcome of our pattern way of seeing the world. We can't talk about how probable this world is. It simply is or isn't, and it happens to be. So it's 100% probable. So The idea is there's something strange about taking the universe as a whole and saying that 
it it fits into this logic of probability, which is what we use within the universe. So, how, what what do you say about that? Well, we do talk about um, I, um, probability. You, you want to see whether you can meaningfully talk about probability of the entire universe being a certain way. I don't see why not. I mean, there's a particular kind of probability you have um, you have to talk about here, what's called epistemic probability, which is the uh, measure of the rational degrees of belief in a hypothesis. And I think scientific inference actually depends on um, being able to talk about probabilities in this way. For example, in the confirmation of atomic, uh, atomic theory, um, it, there was like uh, 13 different methods of predicting Avogadro's number. And it was taken to be, if, it, um, if atomic theory was false, extremely coincidental that, that all those different um, um, ways would yield about the same result. And so here you're talking about a sort of what philosophers call an a priori probability, a probability judgment. It's not based on statistics. There's only one universe to be talking about, and yet still we're using probability talk, and it's fitting into scientific confirmation. So I think if you want to deny that, then you're going to have problems with your um, the reasons why we accept various scientific theories. Well, I mean, I'm a little confused because I would have thought you would appeal to what philosophers call logical probability. So if you don't know anything about a die except that it has six sides, then you have a one in six chance for each side coming up. If you know more about it, uh, then it may not be a true die, and so you may have to change that. Uh, epistemic probability is what the chances are given the evidence we have. Now, I would think in terms of epistemic probability, the universe being the way it is is 100% probable, as Joe says. Uh, so I, th I think it seems to me what you would want would be to appeal to logical probability. That is, we have these 26 parameters, and uh, logically speaking, we don't know of anything that would make one combination more likely than another. You could go with logical probability. There's other issues I have with logical probability. That's the way Richard Swinburne does. But if you want to use epistemic probability, then you have to treat um, our existence as what's called old evidence. And so you, what, um, you do a standard procedure of subtracting it out. And then that's why I use the idea of the unembodied agent um, who doesn't know that there's embodied beings in this universe. And then how probable would that agent judge having the kind of relevantly the same um, faculties as us, how would it judge um, um, how likely it is for um, such a, a, a universe that's life-permitting to exist? That, that's complicated stuff here. I'm going to let a caller in here. Yeah, that's we, that is complicated yeah. stuff. John in Oakland so, on the line. Welcome to, welcome to Philosophy Talk, John. Hi there. This is a great show. Thanks for having me. Um, I just had, well, I could go on forever. I'd love to just sit around and talk for... <laughs> three days about this topic and nothing Can't else. Can't do that but on the radio. To limit time. myself, um, I would say that perhaps uh, there's a problem in that there seems to be in this conversation a, a dichotomy between the atheist mechanistic point of view and a very kind of Judeo-Christian monotheistic point of view. And maybe if you looked at other religious traditions or other, other uh, views, things might fit better. Like I know that there's a lot of mythology that involves... Uh, you know, the beginning of the universe is chaos, and then these things sort of arise out of the chaos and create order. It's not created separately, you know, someone outside. It's the universe itself creates these things, and then from those primal 
you know, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> John, it sounds like you're, John, it sounds to me like you're suggesting you could be a kind of theist, right, or something. You know, the universe begins and, and it settles down. That's a kind of very modern kind of thing. The universe begins as a chaotic system. It settles into some less chaotic state, and it's kind of random that a religion could could endorse such of you. Do you think that there's anything to that, Robin, briefly? Well, let me say um, the Western conception of theism is perhaps not the only one you can go with, but I think any conception that is going to take away the surprise um, of the fine-tuning or explain it has to meet two criteria. First, whatever conception you have should not kick the fine-tuning up one level. So if you have this primordial chaos, then the question is going to arise, well, why is that, isn't there going to have to be laws, special laws to make it all come together to get a fine-tuned universe? And so it looks like that's going to kick the fine-tuning up one level. Second, whatever entity, principle, or et cetera, you hypothesize, it must be such that um, it has the right attributes or um, features such as it renders uh, the existence of a life-permitting universe unsurprising. You're and I think in the case of God, it does that. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the universe and its finely tuned parameters. In our next segment, we'll ask what reason there is to suppose that the intelligent forces responsible for fine-tuning, assume there are such, have any of the attributes religious people think God has, like benevolence or even giving a whit about human existence and happiness. A benevolent creator? A bored practical joker? A creator who designed the universe to make Stalin, the bubonic plague, and nuclear weapons possible? When Philosophy Talk continues. In every leaf that trembles, in every grain of sand. Evidence for design universe in grains of sand? How about kitty litter? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. <laughs> Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Robin Collins from Messiah College. Robin, uh, at the end of Hume's dialogues, Hume's mouthpiece, Philo, like, like Hume, a very skeptical person, says, agrees, that the most likely hypothesis for human life uh, is that the source of order in the universe bears some remote analogy to human intelligence. So, so he accepts uh, something along the lines of the fine-tuning argument, the most likely source of order in the universe. But then he adds that there's no reason to infer anything further that would provide guidance on how human beings should live their lives. Uh, we know that this being, or we, we, the best evidence is that this being is intelligent, uh, and on, on your view, set the parameters for human existence. But what did he want out of that? Was circumcision important to him? Uh, was human happiness important to him? Uh, do we really know anything about this guy or girl or this committee on the basis of the fine-tuning argument? Um, I think you do. I mean, you, once again, you've got to look at my confirmation theory version of it. Um, what, and the criteria I'd mentioned before is that it shouldn't have fine-tuning. You shouldn't kick it up one level. So that means you have the unbounded attributes. <laughs> and it, you have to have a motive for the, um, that being 
creating a life-permitting universe. And that motive has to be non-arbitrary. And I think the only non-arbitrary motive you're going to get is some sort of goodness, some value. Because if you perceive something as being valuable, intrinsically in and of itself, then it's non-arbitrary There's a, that you're going to be motivated so Robin, to slow down, about, slow. given you're perfectly free. R- R- Robin, if, if you import motives to this simple being, aren't you denying its simplicity? Well, I only said it has to. It's minimally simple. I mean, it didn't say simplicity I, I didn't comes in degrees. Be, yes, it comes in degrees. So, I mean, as Richard Swinburne would say, you know, all you have to actually assume is God is perfectly free, unbounded in freedom, no bounds on God's freedom, and omniscient. Then God perceives moral truths that things, certain things, are intrinsically but, good. But, and then it, there's a logical relation between perceiving something as good and being motivated to do it. So then God is motivated to bring about this sort of world. If you don't ascribe any sort of value... Um, Robin, you got to slow down, because I I don't get it. Okay, only a God who is intrinsically good, who has intrinsically valued something, the universe, could possibly create it out of a motive. What about a God who's just bored and intrinsically values his own entertainment and creates us as an instrument of his entertainment? Sounds like you've got some kind of a priori argument to rule that out, but I'm afraid I don't get it. Well, that, uh, such a God could exist, but it wouldn't be confirmed by the fine-tuning evidence. Why not? It's like saying— Why not? Okay, let me give, it, let me give an analogy. You, you have to have some a priori reason to think that um, that kind of being would bring about this sort of universe, not a reason you kind of generate after the fact. So let me give an analogy. Let's suppose, you know, um, John is—Perry um, is the lottery commissioner, and um, Ken— um, <laughs> you win the lottery. Then somebody might be suspicious there was some, you know, corruption going on, okay? Um, because you, you would have at least some reason to think John would pick you because he works with you versus anybody else. But let's suppose John just picked Joe Doe, um, you know, Joe Doe off the street, won the lottery. Then you could say, well, maybe John had a motive for picking Joe Doe. But well, why would he have a motive for picking Joe Doe versus anybody else? So you've just transferred the coincidence up one level to why he would have a motive for predic- um, picking Joe Doe versus all the other, let's say, citizens of California. Oh, okay, Robin, but let's get uh, back to the to the question. Let me give you an analogy. So first, let me point out that that the roots of our religion were were thinkers who had no idea what we now know about the physical universe and its size and uh, the relatively remote and insignificant place from a physical point of view that the Earth plays. So for them, it was very reasonable to suppose that if this thing were created, uh, that uh, humans and human experience must have been central. But but now it seems like uh, it's it's more like if you were in, in the New York subway system and you said, good Lord, this uh, this is a perfect place for rats. That must have been what it was built for. And you would have missed the overall purpose. Isn't it likely that in our insignificant little corner of the universe, we have no idea what, what motivated God? Even if we grant that your theory about the kind of thing that would motivate uh, the creator is right, why would it be human happiness? Why would he have designed such a big universe uh, for f- to to attain for a little bit of time on a little speck over in the corner, 
uh, something called human happiness? Isn't it much more likely that there's something else going on that we're just not aware of? Well, first of all, I don't think the size has anything to do with it because, you know, God has infinite resources. You only worry about size if you were limited um, in resources. And second, I don't think, you know, you're, you're not going to get from, I think, the fine-tuning alone to theism. That's why I cast it as a confirmatory argument. There's other considerations come into play. You you have to think that at least is some sense viable but, but Robin, this I, kind I, of God. I, I'm playing along with that. I'm starting with, with the faith that, that you know you can imagine coming out of as a Catholic or or and the, and then you, you are aware of the physical universe, not just the fine tuning, but the rest of it. If God is as you describe, he's unlimited. He didn't need to create a huge universe. Uh, if you think he has to have motives for what he does, uh, then what's the motive? Well, wait, You're just brushing that off. But well, but I, I, I think the most probable well, explanation, given the a priori belief in a creator, is that we're really a very insignificant part of the creation. Let me push John's point uh, slightly differently, but I'm, I'm, I intend to be piggyback, piggyback on it, and then you can respond to both of us. So, I mean, okay, imagine all the possible life forms, the really cool possible life forms that there could be better than us, more less fallible, less imperfect, less immoral, that God could possibly populate the, the universe with. Uh, I, I suppose that if I believe in the fine-tuning argument, it's got to be kind of surprising if we turn out that, we, suppose it turned out that we were alone. It would be surprising that God chose us, right? So I see, uh, is this a consequence of your argument? That all the possible good life forms there are, they should abound in the universe. They should be profusely abundant. How about that? Well, any, any life form that is um, better to realize than not, yeah, I think God would have created them. So I think that maybe that's the case. There, there, theism gives us reason to expect that there's other life forms um, that um, embody what I call embodied conscious agents and unembodied conscious um, agents. Um, but I think that all I have to argue for here is that there's a particular value realized by a certain kind of being, what I call embodied conscious agents, that are, that are vulnerable to each other in the environment. And I think a certain kind of moral value is realized, and that's being able to exercise um, certain kinds of virtues and the consequences of that, like courage, self-sacrificial love, and things like that. But I'm open to, in fact, I think it's likely that there's not only other beings in somewhere else in the universe. The universe is enormously large, much larger than even what we can see. Um, and maybe uh, lots and lots of other universes. So I'm very sympathetic to a uh, theistic multiverse hypothesis. Well, it, I mean, kind of like the Narnia tales. Your description of God's motive sounds very anthropomorphic to me. Courage. I just, you know, that, I don't know why a perfect being unlimited and simple uh, would would place any value on courage. I mean, that's a football coach's or a, or a general's virtue. I myself uh, would expect a sense of humor to to be much more important, and uh, I would I would expect God to be a bit of a joker. Well, do you think like self-sacrificial love is uh, valuable? Of course, those I, I think those things are valuable. I don't know if they're valuable. They're valuable to me. I don't know if they're valuable to God. It sounds like look. Suppose that God had stopped at the dinosaurs. Would you? Would your argument say that God couldn't possibly have stopped at the dinosaurs because they wouldn't be these moral agents? Blah blah blah. Is that is that what you think? Well, I would think that God would have a reason to not stop at the dinosaurs. Um, it might not be an absolutely compelling reason, but it would be a reason if. Um, 
human beings or beings like us are valuable and God is perfectly good, then God has a motive to bring those about. Now, um, you have to buy into sort of objective value here. So there's a, the whole, there's a series of hypotheses. There's, there's the theistic hypothesis conjoin that with the hypothesis that these things we normally think to be intuitively valuable, like self-sacrificial love, indeed are. That conjunction of those hypotheses renders it unsurprising we have this kind of universe, where as right. the um, atheistic one, it's very surprising. So once again, that conjunction now is confirmed over the other. That would be the proper way of formulating Yeah, but I don't, I, I mean, Robin, I mean, it's an impressive intellectual putting things together, but I just don't think it works. I don't get from a simple, uncomplicated uh, being with infinite powers to self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love is a human phenomenon. It's a rich part of human experience. Uh, it, it, uh, there, there's nothing about human experience that suggests that it's particularly rewarded. Uh, it's, it's a teenage virtue by and large. Uh, why God, why a creator with the power to set the basic parameters of the universe would give a twit about self-sacrificial love completely eludes me. So um, do you think there's anything valuable about our, kinds, our kind of existence that's objectively valuable? Uh, you're throwing in words objectively that I don't understand. You could say really, truly, uh, stamp truly. your foot. But yes, I think it's, it's humanly valuable, and that's fine with me. But I think we've got a, something clear, I think, through this. This is a complicated issue. But it seems like a lot of the weight is not carried by the fine-tuning argument alone, which was John's point when we started this. But it's a fine-tuning argument plus a lot of theology plus a lot of uh, what's, what we call in the trade meta-ethics about where, what values in, are. In fairness to Robin, he's been upfront about it. I agree. I'm yeah. just saying that we've gotten very clear about that. Uh, one last response, Robin, and then we Can have Can I to... just say something about that? Yeah, That's really once quickly. again like the courtroom analogy. The fingerprints alone aren't going to carry the entire weight. You're going to have to – did the witness – were there witnesses that saw the person somewhere else at the time of the shooting? So that's just that, – that's life. I mean, that's how things um, – arguments work. Right. So the fine-tuning argument is about God's fingerprints on the universe, but not more. But on that note, Robin, thank you for joining us. This conversation has tuned my sensibilities quite finely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Our guest has been Robin Collins. He's a distinguished professor of philosophy from Messiah College. He's author of many essays on the fine-tuning argument. The most extensive one is in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. So, John, are your uh, thoughts finely tuned here? <laughs> well, my thoughts are always a little bit roughly tuned. Uh, you know, you have to you have to be a pretty good tuner to uh, uh, to get everything to fall out right. But you know, I'm always impressed by uh, somebody said philosophy has many mansions. I forget who said that. And uh, philosophers go different ways. Uh, uh, there's some really smart people like uh, uh, Robin uh, that we talked to and Richard Swinburne, uh, who who've really. Um, been impressed by this fine-tuning argument. I've heard, I've, I've read philosophers about it. I've heard, uh, I've heard physicists like uh, Ellis uh, uh, who were impressed by it, and I even heard a talk, a very good talk, at my Rotary Club about it. So it is an argument that moves people. Does it move me? Uh, no. I'm not sure it moves me either, but you know, this conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter and find out more by visiting our very active, ever-growing Facebook page. Now we fine-tune our philosophical speedometers with Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes. When I was a kid, there was a large, stupid fellow, Lyle, who would lie and wait for me in my paper route to beat me up. 
The beatings weren't painful, really, because he wasn't very strong, but he was very large. He would hinder my movements by sitting on me and letting his soft fists rain down like bags of pudding. He would do this until his arms got tired, then he would lumber to his feet and waddle away. I would get up, dust myself off, continue delivering papers. All in all, I'd say roughly 20 minutes of my day were lost in this manner. Whenever I hear arguments that suggest God exists because we exist and are conscious, I find myself thinking of this lumbering giant. We are both alive and conscious, hooray, miraculous, but you know, so what? That notion might eventually bring me comfort on my deathbed, knowing that I'm going to a maker who not only brought me into this world, but also large stupid bullies as well, not to mention bumblebees, tyrants, polio, blizzards, and puppies. Thank you, God. But when you're 10 years old, such thoughts do not bring comfort. Fortunately for me, this was the middle of the Cold War. I didn't actually watch or read the news, but the news had a way of trickling down. I got an idea, more than an idea, had the ring of truth. Russia was beating up Hungary and other small nations. Lyle was beating up me, a small person. Russia did not care about the rights and happiness of those people it stepped on. Lyle did not care about the rights and happiness of me. I actually made a list, wrote it down, and concluded that Lyle was a communist. Next time Lyle lay in wait, as he led into me with his fists, I led into him with words, informing him that by his behavior he was no different than Russia. He was a communist, a commie, a commie, a commie. Lyle's fists fell down upon me in a flurry. He began yelling at me to take it back. Suddenly, he started crying. He lurched off me, lumbered away. I got up, dusted myself off, and went back to delivering papers. So what did it all mean? Our little encounters were not exactly what I would call purpose-filled. Certainly, it could be that that purpose eluded me. Or it could be that these encounters were merely meaningless events in an absurd universe. I can't prove either statement. But the statement, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, tell that to Lyle, pal. He never bothered me again. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but talk don't bother me. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Itran, Carola Kreitmar, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. And also from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.